I invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians and bow your hearts with me as we pray. This is our prayer as we begin this journey in this book that you would show us Christ. That you would show us Christ to know His glory and all His beauty and what He has accomplished on our behalf so that by the time we are done, no one here will trust in anything other than Christ. That is our desire, that is our glory, that Christ would be exalted through the preaching of the Word. Our desire here, Lord, that every soul that hears this would be converted and would trust in the glorious gospel of grace. I pray that you would be exalted now, and I pray that your Spirit would work powerfully in our hearts. And our words that we say, these are mere human words, but we ask that you would, by your Spirit, be pleased to bring them and carry them to the heart. Those who are unconverted, we ask that you would break in and bring life. Those who are saved, Lord, I pray that you would encourage. Those who are struggling, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of the gospel. And those who are tempted to compromise, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of where you have delivered them from. I pray that each one of us would hold on to the gospel of grace as we study this amazing book. I pray this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, and so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men. For I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of Christ beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God who has set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, after, an interval, after three, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other, any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother, now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. 
but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along. Also, it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of high reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not submit to them, even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcision, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ in the ministry of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuilt what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I have died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by... Uh, however, at that time, when you did not know, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now, that no one is justified by the works, by the law, is evident before God. For it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. But he, on the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a men's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to his seed. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of the transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Now now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas Christ is only one. Is the law then? Contrary to the promises of God, may it never be. For the scripture has shut up everyone under sin in order that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were kept held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
I fear for you, that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Brethren, I beg you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of the bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaved. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision is anything, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. 
Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In a statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care, brethren, that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. For all who are led by the Spirit, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Therefore, let us not become boastful. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if any are caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Each one look into himself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burden and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to, get to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they will boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For all who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cast trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. 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 
That's the book of Galatians. That's the book that will serve as the basis for our study for about seven months, starting today. Now, my job today is to introduce you and to give you an overview of the book. And having gone through the whole book just now, it will be easy for you to piece things together. And so I thought it would be appropriate to tell you the book before I tell you something about the book, right? So in the time that we have left, I want to basically answer four questions. Four questions that will provide an introductory overview of the book. The first question is who? Who? Who wrote the book? And second, to whom was it written? Second question we're going to answer is when? When was this book written? Third question is why? Why? What compelled the author to write this book? And number four, the question is what? What is in the book? Now, you just heard the book, so we'll just summarize that. What's in here? So let's begin with question number one, who? Who wrote the book? Now, as you can see, if you look at chapter one, verse one, you don't have to read far into the book to find the answer to this question, right? Paul, an apostle. He identifies himself by name once again in chapter five, verse two, where he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you. So at least twice in this book, which is not usual, Paul mentions himself by name. Now, these references in and of themselves are enough to quiet all the debate and to, you know, you don't have to spend and sacrifice a lot of trees to debate who wrote this book. He mentions it twice here. Now, besides Paul mentioning himself by name here, there is so much autobiographical material in this book, as you just heard. In fact, chapter 1, or large portion of chapter 1, the second part, and chapter 2, they're all devoted to Paul's conversion, to his travels, and to his mission. Now, we can take the information that Paul gives us here in the first two chapters, and we can corroborate it with other books of the Bible, like the book of Philippians, where Paul talks about his conversion, and primarily the book of Acts. If you look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, Paul describes his pre-conversion life. He was a zealous member of Jewish elite, and his goal was to destroy Christianity. He was a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. Most likely, Paul was a young member of Sanhedrin because, you remember, he says, I would cast my vote when believers were persecuted. We can corroborate that also with the book of Acts and Philippians. Now, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul describes his conversion and his mission. You remember that is reference to Acts chapter 9, where God knocked into his heart, no, God knocked him off his horse, and God brought him to himself and converted him. And he converted, I mean, think about Paul. Paul was the Osama bin Laden of the New Testament. He was the terrorist who would terrorize Christians, murder them, travel from city to city, killing them. Why? Because of his religious convictions. He says, I was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul thought that these guys were frauds and you need to kill them. He was a terrorist. And God converts him, God saves him, and God makes him his vessel. He's converted, and God sends him into a desert for three years. Because according to chapter 1, verse 17, he says, When I got saved, I didn't go to Jerusalem, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. And for three years, he was there. Three years later, after his conversion, we read here in verse 18 of the first trip, 
that Paul makes to Jerusalem. Three years after he got saved. Now listen to how Luke describes this trip. In the book of Galatians, there's just one verse here, but Luke gives this description. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took, him, uh, took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had taken that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Now, if we put these two accounts together, Paul shows up to Jerusalem. First, they don't really want to accept him. Now Barnabas brings him, he meets here Peter, and he meets James here, and then he spends with them 15 days, according to chapter 1, verse 18 of the book of Galatians, and then he goes out there and he starts preaching, and there's an attempt on his life, and according to Acts chapter 9, the disciples send him out. They send him out, and he goes to his hometown, Tarsus. In our book here, in the book of Galatians, Paul says, Then I went to regions of Syria and Cilicia, and for the next 10 years you hear nothing about Paul. Paul is gone for the next 10 years until you get to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, Barnabas travels to Tarsus and he brings Paul to Antioch where he's teaching in the church along with Barnabas. That's Acts 11.26. So besides Paul's name, besides his autobiography that he gives to us in this book, there's also another clue. Most likely, Paul wrote this book through his secretary, all with the exception of the final words. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. In six verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I mean, why would he be saying that? Because there was something distinctive about that. Because Paul wrote most of his letters dictating to his secretary. But here, this is Paul's signature. There was something distinctive about his writing. So we can conclude beyond the shadow of a doubt that this book is written by Apostle Paul. So if Paul was the author, who were the recipients? Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 2. He says, to the churches of Galatia. Again, much ink has been spilled to determine whether he's referring here to the northern Galatia or to southern Galatia, which is modern-day modern Turkey. Now, Paul does not identify the churches to whom he's writing. He just says, to the churches of Galatia. Now, while we may not know for certain which churches he's referring to, there are some things we can know for certain based on this book. First, Paul started, or at least personally ministered in these churches. How do we know that? Look at chapter 4, verse 13. He says, but you know that it was because of the, a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Who preached the gospel to them? Paul did. They got converted under his ministry. He says, I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God. Now the circumstances here are unclear, unclean, unclean, Unclear, so we don't know exactly what was happening and how he ended up there. But apparently there was some kind of a physical ailment because he says here, my bodily illness, then he adds my bodily condition. Based on verse 15, many people speculate that it was some kind of an eye disease. 
Because if you look at verse 15, he says, For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Whether Paul had an eye disease of some sort that caused him to deter his plans or to change his plans. And so Paul ends up there. And by the way, that might explain the large print in, ch in chapter 6, verse 11. If he's got eye problem there. Now, based on Acts 13 and Acts 14... We know that Paul tra traveled on his first missionary journey in southern Galatia, and he started at least four churches there. Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. According to Acts chapter 14, when they're returning back to Antioch, in verse 21 it says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. These are churches in the southern Galatia strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they have believed. This was Paul's first missionary journey. Therefore, it is best to conclude that, these, that this letter is written to these churches in the southern, I mean, we will say today in Turkey, but southern Galatia. And it is these churches that were established by Paul during his first missionary journey. So who wrote it? Paul. To whom did he write it? He wrote it to churches in the southern Galatia. Probably specifically these four cities there. Let's look at the second question. When did he write this letter? When did Paul write this? Again, this is another question for which many trees have been sacrificed. And the basic issue here is to take the book of Galatian, Galatians and to reconcile it with the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, you read of five different visits that Paul makes to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 9, the first visit that we talked about, he says when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. That's Acts chapter 9. The second visit is in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 verse 29 says, And, the and to the proportion that any of the disciple had disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So that's the second visit. Acts chapter 9 is 1, Acts chapter 11 is 2. Acts chapter 15 is perhaps the most famous one. It's the first shepherd's conference, right? You have Jerusalem council there. According to Acts chapter 15, verse 4, he says, When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. That is the third visit. The fourth visit is in Acts chapter 18. It says, When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Although Jerusalem is not mentioned by name here, name here, most assume that went up and came down is a reference to Jerusalem. And then the final visit is in Acts chapter 21. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And you remember, that's the trip where Paul got arrested. Now those are the five trips that are mentioned in the book of Acts. Now if you take the book of Galatians, here we have two visits. Because in, Acts chapter, in Galatians 1.18, he says, three years, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. And in the second trip that is mentioned is in chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. So the question is, how do you match these trips? 
in the book of Galatians to which of the five is Paul referring to. Now, pretty much everybody agrees that it is not the last two because that's pretty late in ministry. Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 21, pretty much everyone agrees that that's not what he's talking about. Almost everyone agrees that the first one mentioned in Acts chapter 9 is the one that he mentions in Galatians 1.18, where he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with James, and he meets with Peter there. So the question is, is the second trip mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, is that a reference to chapter 11, or is that a reference to chapter 15? Now, I always assumed that he's talking about chapter 15. Because there are so many parallels, because you have same people involved. We have here James, we have Peter, we have Paul, we have Titus, we have Barnabas. Same guys are involved. Even the issue that they're dealing with is the same issue. How do Gentiles relate to Mosaic Law? That's what he's doing in Galatians chapter 2, and that's what he's dealing with in Acts chapter 15. But if you examine it closely, it's probably not... Acts chapter 15, but rather Acts chapter 11. Notice a few details here that seem to be very different. We'll get to Galatians chapter 2.1 in a couple weeks, and then we'll lay out all the arguments for that. But for now, just notice a few details. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. First he says, It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among Gentiles, but I did so in private, to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Note here the reason why Paul went to Jerusalem. He says, it was because of a revelation that I went up. Now that's not exactly what happened in Acts chapter 15. Because you remember in Acts chapter 15 verse 2, it says, The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So in Acts chapter 15, the church sends Paul and Barnabas. In Galatians 2, Paul says, I went there because I received a direct revelation from God. Notice also that Galatians chapter 2 was a private meeting. Because he says here, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation. Acts 15 was anything but private, right? Because Acts 15, 4 says, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and apostles and the elders. And verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been much debate. This is not a private meeting. This is the whole conference got together, and so people presenting arguments, they're presenting their propositions, right? And they're having this debate. It is not a private meeting. So therefore, it is most likely best to assume that Acts chapter 11 is a reference, is referenced here in Galatians chapter 2. Now you might be sitting here thinking like, man, what's the point of all this? How is all this relevant? Well, this is how. Because most scholars agree that Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council meeting, happened in A.D. 49. If Jerusalem Council had already taken place when Paul wrote this, no doubt Paul would make a reference to that here. Why? Because the issue that Paul is dealing with here is how do the Gentiles relate to the law? And they settled that at Jerusalem Council. So when Paul was writing this, that council has not yet taken place. The decision that they came up with, with the apostles and everyone involved there, was not yet made. Therefore, 
We have to say that the book of Galatians was written before 49 AD, before Jerusalem Council. Now, this fits in perfectly with chronology of the book of Acts. Now, just keep in mind how they did math back then. This is not common core math, but it might sound like that. I mean, recently we just had resurrection, right? And people ask this question every time we come to Easter. Is how is it that Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights if he died on Friday at 3 p.m. and he rose early Sunday morning? That doesn't sound to me like three days and three nights, right? But if you were a Jew living at that time, the way you looked at it, if you catch any part of any day, you would count that as a day. So Friday from 3 till 6, you got one. The whole Saturday, you got two. And part of Sunday, you got three. That's how they get it. Now, the same thing goes for years. If you catch any part of the year, that's when you have numbers. Three years or 14 years, the same thing could be said for that. Now, if you take chronology of the book of Acts and try to reconcile this with the book of Galatians, it would go something like this. Acts chapter 11 or Acts chapter 9 is when Paul is converted. That is around A.D. 33 or 34. His first visit to Jerusalem is three years later, as he tells us. So that's somewhere around 36. His second trip is 14 years from his conversion. So we're somewhere around 46. And that's Acts chapter 11. So after his first visit to Jerusalem, he goes on his first missionary journey, which was about two years, from 46 to 48. And right after that journey, journey before Jerusalem Council in 49, Paul writes this book. Now, no wonder if you look at chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul's like, listen, I was there last year. I mean, your church is at most two years old and you are already turning on Christ. I'm amazed that you're turning away from the gospel so quickly. So all this to say is that the date for the book of Galatians is A.D. 48. Paul wrote it, wrote it to the churches in southern Galatia in 48 A.D. That's first two questions. Question number three, why? Why did Paul write this book? You see, Paul wrote this book, as I just said, because he established these churches in the last two years, and now these churches were abandoning the gospel of grace. If you look again at verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. They were rejecting the message that Paul preached to them. You see, when Paul left the region, because he would preach the gospel, the church was established, he would move on to the next city and preach again, right? He was a missionary. And that's what he does. So he moves on, and then false teachers come in. They infiltrate the church, Judaizers. And they began to teach that, listen, if, you need, if you're going to be saved, you need to observe the law of Moses. You need to get circumcised. And they have this mesh between Christianity and Judaism. Paul writes this book to warn these people and say to them, if you go back to the old way, if you go back to law and circumcision, you are abandoning Christ. You cannot have them both. You will either have Jesus plus nothing, but if you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. That is the point. 
And so because these people were adding a bunch of other things to the gospel, saying whether you have to do something to be saved, or you have to do something to maintain your salvation, he says, if you do that, you are denying Christ. And Paul was like, listen, I preached the gospel to you. I've explained this truth to you. And now I, I just walked out of the door, and here you are, churning on the gospel. But notice, they don't just turn on the gospel, they turn on Paul. Because in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now they're treating Paul like an enemy. That's what false teachers do. You see, if you can turn them on Paul, you can turn them on the gospel. If Paul is fraud, then whatever Paul is preaching is also fraud. So they say, hey, whatever Paul is preaching is not true, and he turns on Paul. They turn on Paul. So how does Paul respond? Now if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you a brief outline of the book that we will follow in the months to come. Galatians 1, 1 through 10, is basically an introduction to the book. Paul says hello, and he just jumps right into the rebuke, which is so different than any other book, you know, when he says like, oh, I thank my God for you all. No, no, you're turning on the gospel, and if anyone's preaching to you false gospel, go to hell. Yeah, welcome, Paul, thank you. That's the introduction to the book of Galatians, first 10 verses. Then, from chapter 1, verse 11, all the way through chapter 2, verse 21, we have vindication of Paul's ministry. Now, the reason why Paul does that is not because he has such a huge ego and he wants to defend himself and like, how dare you? No, because Paul says, listen, I am a minister of the gospel. God has called me. God has appointed me. God has given me gospel. And if you turn on what I am preaching to you, you will be damned. So what's at stake is not my ego here. What's at stake is your soul. And that's why Paul spends two chapters defending his ministry. And he's going to argue in those two chapters, as you will see in a couple of weeks to come, that he's going to say that, listen, I received the gospel from God. I didn't make it up. And when I received the gospel, I didn't go to the guys with high reputation. So they would say, okay, Paul, we approve of you. No, he's like, man, for 13 years, 14 years, I didn't go to them to see like, hey, you guys, you approve what I'm preaching? No, I, did, I received gospel by direct revelation. It was given to me by God. And I didn't seek approval of anyone. And I preached that gospel. And you believe that gospel. And so that's why he spends so much time defending his ministry. Galatians 3, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 1, is vindication of the gospel. Paul first defends himself as the ministry of the gospel. And then he gives a defense of the gospel in chapter 3, all the way to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 10, his application of the gospel. If you're going to accept Paul as the minister of the gospel, and if you're going to accept the gospel that he preaches, that has implications for your life. How you live after your conversion matters. What you do with the truth that you receive matters. The truth that you believe will change the way you live. And that's chapter 5, all the way through chapter 6, verse 10. And chapter 6, verse 11 through 18 is basically conclusion to the book. His final goodbyes. So introduction to the book, Vindication of Paul's ministry, vindication of the gospel, application of the gospel, and a conclusion. Paul writes this book to warn these people not to abandon the gospel of free grace for legalism. That's why he's writing this book. In the last few minutes, I want to answer the question, what? What is in this book? Now, I just gave you an outline of the book, but now... What I want to do is I want to zero in on the message of this book. Specifically, what is it that Paul is trying to communicate to them? 
Now, if I can summarize this book in one sentence, it would go like this. Since you are freed and justified by faith, keep standing in freedom. That is the message of the book. If you are freed and justified by faith, keep standing in freedom. Now, there's two summary verses in this book that I want you to memorize, that I want you to write them down, put postcards, or just, you know, highlight, circle, whatever you have to do. The first key, key verse is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. After Paul has defended the gospel, now this is the conclusion that he draws. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now you heard me recite all four chapters, and as Paul defends himself, and he defends the gospel, this is his conclusion. Listen, how did you get saved? You got saved by believing the free message of the gospel. You have been set free. How were you set free? You were set free because you were justified simply by believing the gospel. By grace alone, through faith alone. Now, this leads us to the second key verse of this book, and that is Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. That's the emphasis here. You remember, this is in the section where Paul confronts Cephas, or Peter, and he says this, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You see, the issue that Paul deals with in this book is justification. Now, the way Paul uses it in this book is a reference. Justification is a synonym for salvation. How did you get saved? That is the question that he's asking. To be justified is to be saved. To be saved is to have peace with God. Now, obviously, that implies that if you don't trust Christ, you don't have peace with God. God is your enemy, and you are his enemy, right? And so he says, if you're going to have a peace with God, if you as a sinner are going to be reconciled, if you're going to be brought into the family of God, how's that going to happen? What is the basis upon which God will declare you righteous? What is the basis upon which you get access to heaven? Is it because you're a good person? Is it because you do something? Is it because you get circumcised? Is it because you keep the law? Or what is it that will justify you? And the book presents two opposing views. The first view is justification by faith. That is the view that Paul will defend in this book. Justification by faith versus justification by works. Paul argues that there is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to be justified, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is not a new way. This is not something novel that Paul came up with. It has always been this way. And to defend that view, Paul goes back all the way to Abraham, the hero of the Jews. Was he not? And he goes and he asks a question in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, hey, by the way, how is Abraham justified? What did he do? Chapter 3, verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Listen, Abraham simply believed God and was justified. He was not justified because he was circumcised. He was not justified because he kept the law. The law did not even exist for three, 430 years. Right? He got justified in Genesis chapter 15. 
He received circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. So just logically, circumcision is not a prerequisite for justification, for salvation. It says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, false teachers that came into these churches, they promoted a different way of salvation, justification by the works of the law. Now, as you just read and you just heard that there are so many references to law and to the works of the law in this book. Now, we will study each verse in detail, but for now, let me just give you a quick summary. Obviously, the reference here is to Mosaic law and to the works that are associated with that. Here's Paul's view of the law that he argues in this book. First, he says that the law is contrary to, to, to faith. He says the law does not justify it, but in fact the law condemns. Therefore, you cannot be saved by obeying the law. And if you are saved, you are not under the law after you are saved. You see, the purpose of the law, as Paul will argue in this book, is to lead us to Christ. Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law on your behalf. And you are no longer under the law, Mosaic law. But as he says in chapter 6, verse 2, now you are under the law of Christ. You see, the purpose of Mosaic law was to reveal sin and to lead us to Christ. That's the whole point of chapter 3. The purpose of the law in the Old Testament, even then, was to show you that you cannot achieve salvation on your own. That was the purpose of it. The purpose was to say, listen, you always fall short. The law came in to demonstrate how holy and righteous God was. And so because no one can keep the law, there were provisions for sacrifices. When you fall short, then you have to go to the temple or you have to go to the tabernacle and you have to bring your animal which God has provided. The animal was, which was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. And so here, when he's writing this, Paul says, let me tell you something. You can never be saved by that which was not intended to, make you, intended to save you. That was not the intent of the law. It was never intended to do that. In fact, he says here in chapter 2, verse 21, that if you can get saved by keeping the law, then Christ died needlessly. I mean, just think about that statement. He says, if there is any other way for you to be saved, then Jesus Christ would not have to die. But guess what? He died because there is no other way to be justified. He died because there is no other way to be saved. You see, Jesus Christ comes he lives a perfect life. He doesn't sin. He obeys the law. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. He lives a perfect life. He was the sinless lamb of God who goes to the cross. And then God takes my sin and he takes your sins, the time, times you and I broke the law, the times you and I have violated and sinned against God. And so he says he takes that and he puts that on Christ and then he takes divine wrath and pours it on Jesus Christ and he dies on the cross bearing your sin. That's why in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He says everyone who is under the law is under curse because you cannot keep the law. You have no ability to do that. But Christ stands in your place and he dies in your place. Now he says, if you get saved by simply believing the message of the free gospel, believing the gospel, if you get saved like that, 
you don't go back and keep the law. You don't go back to that law which was simply intended to point you to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 24. Now, some people, you know, they're very clever, and they come up with things like, well, you see, you can take the Mosaic law, and you can break it into three categories. There is moral, there is ceremonial, and then there is civil. When Christ came, lived a perfect life, he fulfilled the ceremonial law, and he fulfilled the civil law, and the moral law is still binding upon you today. Now, yeah, it sounds really good. However, this distinction is arbitrary, and you will not find it anywhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. For example, take Ten Commandments. Sabbath. It's part of moral code. And yet it was a civil law, because you had severe penalties that if you were to violate the civil law, there were civil penalties. You see, when you're taking the law... The law is a whole, and you cannot break it into parts. Oh, this fits in here, this fits in perfectly in there. No, the law is a whole. It was given by God to people in order to, as Paul says here, to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. You see, it is impossible to separate these various laws into different compartments because they're all intertwined together as a whole. You see, Christ kept the whole law for you. All of it, ceremonial, civil, and moral. Every, you're accepted because of Christ's work and Christ's work alone. And notice the argument that he makes here. If you're going to return back to the law, and you're going to say that now as a Christian, you've got to go back and you've got to keep the law, he says, you lose Christ. You can't have him both. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, for verse 2. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you take some rite or some ceremony from the Old Testament and you say, well, you know what, Jesus is really good, but just in case, get circumcised. I mean, it was a good idea in the Old Testament. You have to do that. And what about verse 3? And I testify to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You must obey every single precept of law. You can't just say, oh, this is, I can do this, that, that Christ fulfilled. No, obey all the law. And what's the point? You can't do that. Because you will fall short. And when you fall short, you will condemn yourself. So you're either going to trust Christ wholly and fully, or you're going to rely upon yourself. And you're going to try to do it yourself. And Paul says you cannot do that. Believers today are not under the law. And here we're talking about Mosaic law. Look at chapter 6, verse 2. Paul makes a different reference here. He says, but bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. New Testament has enough commands for you to obey. Now, there is huge overlap. In fact, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And so you obey those not because they're part of the law, but because you are commanded by Christ and the New Testament writers to obey those things. This is not Old Testament law. And so he says here, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. Same God is the author of both, so there is overlap there. But you see, if you go back to old system and try to think that somehow by doing some things that were required by the old system, you'll be accepted by God, you cannot be saved. That is what Paul is talking about. What is the gospel of grace? We're going to call this series here in the book of Galatians, Guarding the Gospel of Grace. Reason number one, we're going to say it's guarding the gospel of grace because there's temptation to compromise this gospel. I mean, think about this. Why are people tempted to go back and say, 
or you have to do something. You see, the message that you can't do anything to save yourself, it's not very popular. You can't do anything to save yourself. Like, what do you mean I can't do anything? And so, you see, it's our human nature, it's our human tendency to say that, but I can do something, but I can offer to God something. And on the other hand, when you say you can't do nothing, the only thing you can do is you can believe in someone who did something for you. Then you know what? It's faith. It is placing your faith in someone else. But you see, it's much easier to say, but look at me. I mean, I keep the law. I go to church. I read my Bible. I mean, isn't that worth something? God should somehow reward that. And so all of a sudden, you think you have earned something in some way, and now God looks at you. So you talk to people, you go preach the gospel, and you say, well, if you stand before God today, and he's going to ask you, why should I turn to heaven? What are you going to say? That's what I always say to people. And the answer goes something like this, you know. Well, you know, I mean, sure, I'm human, but uh, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. And all of a sudden, it switches into, I've done all these things, right? Or I haven't done all those things. And so the merit is in your work. Because you've done something or you haven't done something. But you know what? You have sinned to your account. And no matter how much good you've done, you have sinned to your account. And someone must atone for your sin. It's just like, if I get pulled over driving, you know, 75 here Folsom, on Folsom, right? And then I'll tell the officer, you know, I've been driving to this church here for two years, and listen, I've always went speed limit. Would you please let me go? Is he going to let me go? No. Who cares? It doesn't matter that you drove here for the last two years doing speed limit. Now you broke the law. you got to pay for that law, right? You see, we think that because I do something good, somehow that will outweigh the bad thing that I did. No, when you did the thing that is good, you're still at zero because you haven't done anything impressive because you just did what you were supposed to do. But every time you sin, you're going lower and lower and lower and lower. That's why he says you have a debt that is accumulated to your account. And that's why when Christ went to the cross, he went and he wiped out the debt that you owe. And not only that, afterwards, after he wipes out your debt, he gives you his own righteousness. And so now you have positive balance in your account. That's what happens. That's the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is not that you can pull yourself somehow by your bootstraps and save yourself. That is not the gospel of grace. That's gospel of works. The gospel of grace is you trust the work of another. You are saved by works, but not your own works. There is only one work that God accepts, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. And unless you fully trust in that work, you will be damned and you will go to hell. And that's not my message. That's Paul's message. And that's why it's my message. Right? That's what he says. If anyone is preaching to you a different gospel and is offering to you a different way of salvation, go to hell. That's what it literally means. Let him be condemned. That's what he's talking about. And you know what? You need to guard that message. You need to guard that message. You need to preach that message because people will undermine it. And people will wrap it in beautiful wrappers and say, well, no, 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 you don't have to keep the law. But you know what? That's, that's still a good thing to do. No, you are saved because of Christ and Christ alone. This is the gospel of grace. Now, as we'll end this plane, do you believe in the gospel of grace? Do you believe this gospel? Are you justified? And if you are, what are you justified by? If you were to stand before God today and he was going to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? You see, unless the answer is Christ alone, every other answer will fail that test.
And you know what? The thing op opens out on the bottom and that's what happens. You fail. There's only one gospel of grace, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, don't trust your works. Don't trust the fact that you were baptized maybe as a baby. Don't trust the fact that you go to church or that you read your Bible or that your family is great or whatever else. None of those things matter. Do you trust Christ? Do you believe in Christ? Have you said, listen, Lord, if you don't save me, I'm going to hell. I'm taking all my eggs and I'm putting them in one basket. And that one basket is Jesus Christ. And you see, unless you do that, you do not believe in the gospel of grace that Paul is defending in this book. Notice this message is not only for pagans out there or maybe for some people who think they're religious out there. This is the message for us here in the church. Because who was this book written to? To the churches of Galatia. It was written to the church. You see, all of us here need to be reminded of this gospel again and again. Remember that on your best day as a Christian, you are saved by the gospel of grace. And on your worst day of, as a Christian, you're still saved by the gospel of grace. It is never because of anything you do. You are accepted in Christ. And if you try to add anything to that, and you try to think that God will somehow accept you or love you more because of you somehow will be pleasing to Him apart from Christ, that is impossible. Now we'll close right now our service with a song that we chose as a theme song for this book. And our prayer is that by the time we're done, you'll not only sing the words of this book, but you will believe them with every fiber of your being. There is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my Father's plan. The Son has rescued me. Oh, what a gospel, oh, what a peace, my highest joy and my deepest need. Now and forever, He is my light. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would help us. Help us to believe. I pray that You would help our unbelief. But Jesus, I pray for anyone here who is not trusting this gospel of grace. Would You be kind? and open their eyes, and bring them to Yourself. For us, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in this, and go from here, from here and remind ourselves again and again that we are justified by Christ, and Christ alone. Amen.